much better. If I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question. Mr. President, if I may, if I may Wait, ask Peter, one other question, are you worried? That's enough. That's M enough. Mr. President, I, well, that's I was going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. Mr. President, me. that's enough. Mr. President, I had one Peter. other question. Welcome to Bots and Ballots from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Burning. That was a clip from C-SPAN of the imbroglio between CNN's Jim Acosta and Donald Trump last week. I'm starting this week with that clip because it says a lot about our information space right now, which is a polluted mess full of half-truths, half-facts, and outright lies. I'm more and more convinced that the health of our democracy depends on a healthy information space. And the story behind that clip shows our information space is about to get a lot worse. After that confrontation with the president, Acosta had his credentials suspended by the White House, who said that he accosted the young female intern who was trying to take the microphone from him as he kept talking. This is where the story takes a turn. After that decision, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, released a video of the confrontation. It appeared to show Acosta violently slap the intern's arm as she reached for the mic. That video, we now know, was sped up for several frames, so it looked like a karate chop when it was really a mild brush. It came from a conspiracy website called InfoWars. At first, the White House denied the clip was doctored, but then on Sunday, Kellyanne Conway, counselor to the president, said the changes were minor, and the type of changes that would show up on a sports highlight. Here's why this is a dark harbinger. This event happened in front of the whole press corps, in front of live cameras, and it still managed to sink into the realm of relativism. These doctored videos, which are the next wave of misinformation, are coming faster than you think. Experts call them deep fakes. If you think clickbait and fake news headlines spread fast on Facebook now, wait until we have videos of politicians saying and doing things that never happened, and politicians denying videos of things they actually did. The more I've covered this space, the more I'm convinced that we need to stand up for reality. We need to tell the truth, and we need to try and consume it. All that is sort of off-topic for my guest today, former governor of Vermont and presidential candidate Howard Dean. Back in 2004, he created the Modern Digital Campaign. Obama cribbed off his notes and won the presidency twice. Just four years later, Democrats looked like digital dinosaurs as Trump ran circles around them on Facebook and Twitter. What happened? Howard Dean, thanks so much for coming on Bots and Ballots. Thanks for having me. What's your general take on how the Democrats did on Tuesday? Well, my take is different than the usual pundit take. The pundit take is we did fine. I was very disappointed to lose Missouri and uh, North Dakota and Indiana in terms of the incumbents that went down. But we did very, very well in the House. Uh, however, the real uh, message here has not much to do with who, what, where, and how we won and all that stuff. In the sort of the, the big picture, young people are taking over the Democratic Party, and that's a very good thing. Most of the things that happened did not happen because the Democratic Party centralized in Washington, D.C., made them happen. It happened because there's a huge grassroots movement in this country run by people who are mostly under 35 in various forms, run for something indivisible, color of change, collective pack, voter Latino, there's many more. And they basically did all the organization. So our party has to get with the times and it's happening already. The Republicans, I think, are going to have a terrible time because they're getting older and whiter and that's not the direction the country's going in. Uh, we are, on the other hand, modernizing through no, no fault of our own, but it's happening because the grassroots has changed everything. The other thing that's really fascinating is that most journalists write the easy, no-brain story, left and versus the center and all this. That's complete crap. Uh, in fact, this generation is much more inclusive than we are, so they're very progressive on gay rights and women's rights. They 
uh, care deeply about immigration, inclusion, they value diversity, but they're more conservative than we are about money. And they also care less about ideology and more about the facts. Those are the candidates that won all over the country, specifically in the Midwest and the West. And that is very important to our future. So I'm very upbeat about what happened, not just because we picked up a whole lot of seats. I think that's great. But what really happened was that the party's changing, and it's now that change is well underway, and it's going to keep happening. So let's go back to 2004 for a little bit. Your presidential run was sort of famous at the time because you had an incredible ground game. Um, you relied on small donors, and you had a huge tech advantage. Obama had a huge tech advantage in 2008. Then all of a sudden we get to 2016, and it looks like the Democrats are miles behind the Republicans on tech. What happened? The DNC fell apart, eight years of neglect and bad leadership, and the, the Republicans got smart. Look, the Republicans are not stupid. They may not be very interested in democracy, but they're certainly not stupid. What they did was jump over us. As I Look, I stole a lot of their ideas when I got to be chairman of the DNC. They were much better at segmenting electorates than well, we learned from them, and then they learned from the DNC after we were very successful with Obama who, were, by the way, were the same people in my campaign in many ways. I hired them to do the DNC after uh, I became chairman, and then Obama hired them away from me in 2006. And then you had Pluff's incredible ability on top of that. So we're way behind. I mean, our tech is behind. There's a lot of political fighting because when the party got weak during the eight years of uh, President Obama's leadership of the country, uh, you know, the, the DNC was falling behind. And there's a lot of infighting. The states had to fend for themselves. They developed their own way of doing things. That doesn't really work. You really do need a centralized database. So while we've done everything right because young people have come in and taken over the functions from outside, uh, we don't have the tech thing down yet. We really do need a central list. The other thing that I don't think Democrats understand in general, not just the DNC, is that we've got to spend more money on social media advertising and less on television. The problem with that, television makes consultants a lot of money. I mean, the higher up in the food chain you are with your political position and what you're running for, the more money you have. So you hire the Washington consultants, which give you exactly the wrong advice, uh, which is to spend a lot of money on television, which in parenthesis they make 15 percent on. What we really need to do is do what the Republicans do and spend a lot more money on social media, which is very cheap because it actually reaches more people. And that's going to be truer and truer as we go along. Television is a tremendous waste of money. You have to do some, but it's incredibly a blunt instrument. One of the talking points I've seen around is that all this stuff with Cambridge Analytica that Trump's campaign did and was later criticized for, Obama's campaign did similar things or at least things of a kind. Do you think that's true? Yes and no. I don't think they farmed it out to the Mercers, who had, were billionaires who, and were unscrupulous and, and were in bed with um, people like Steve Bannon and maybe worse. No, that's not true. Our party is much more democratic with a small D than the Republican Party, which is essentially run by billionaires. You know, they just take orders from Shelley Adelson and the Koch brothers and people like that. We also didn't engage in some of the illegal things that Cambridge Analytica did in connivance with Facebook, which was, which I think was more motivated by greed than anything else. So the answer is no. Uh, I do think the Cambridge Analytical stuff was, uh, was probably a little overblown, but I think, I think it was successful. But we, as far as I know, have done nothing that's even remotely like that. What Obama did was simply meld a bunch of uh, lists with the DNC list. 
So his list was very, very good, but that was built. There was nothing devious about it. It was not. It was built from sources that were already there, and he had very good tech people, and I know that because they were my tech people in 2004. Now, let me just give some credit here. I am not terribly fluent with the net. Uh, we, we were so successful in becoming this campaign that was about tech and small-dollar fundraising because we had no money. We were from Vermont with you know, 600,000 people, and we had a very powerful message. It was a little like Beto's campaign, I suppose. All these kids came and worked for us for nothing, and they designed the whole thing. We just let them do whatever they want. In fact, when Trippy hired people, he'd say, well, who have you worked for? And if they'd say something like my DD, just say you, you were hired. And that was the end because he knew that he knew enough about tech to know who, who was good and who wasn't and where you should work and where you shouldn't. That's how it really started. So all the 23-year-olds on Joe Rosebars who went on to found Blue State Digital with you know, five or six or eight other guys from the tech uh, team on our campaign – um, you know, I mean, that's that's where this all comes from. Uh, but I, I don't take a lot of credit for it. The only tr- credit I take is having a powerful enough message to bring young, incredibly tech-oriented people in 2004 into the political world for the first time. Uh, and and we're living with the, with the rewards of that. And Obama made it in much more disciplined than I could ever be uh, and ran what I consider to be the two best campaigns uh, ever for an American presidency. So Republicans have these programs. One of them is called I-360, which is a Koch brother funded um, master database of the electorate. It works with social media. Do Democrats have anything similar? Do Democrats need something similar? We need it and we don't have it because we don't let billionaires run our party. I mean, there's Democratic billionaire donors. Uh, there are, uh, but they don't have the focus and, frankly, the unscrupulousness of, of the Koch brothers and the, and the people on the Republican side. Look, you have to understand, Republicans basically don't believe in democracy. I mean, when you saw what happened in, in Georgia a couple of days ago where thousands of people didn't get to vote in Arizona where the Republican Party is suing the state to prevent the counting of mail-in ballots, I mean, <laughs> these people don't give a damn about democracy. So they're much more comfortable with billionaires telling them what to do. Uh, we're not. I mean, we, we appreciate the donations. And I think if Mike Bloomberg hadn't given as much as he had, uh, you know, we wouldn't have done as well. But we, we don't want to take orders from billionaires. That's just not what we want to do. You mentioned that the Republican Party is undemocratic and run by these billionaires. But wasn't Trump sort of an act of pure democracy? I mean, there there was plenty of parts of the Republican Party which were trying to reject him and a lot of the funding wasn't going towards him, and yet he was still able to find a base and get elected. Well, you know, he found a base that was more interested in electing an autocrat than they were in democracy. You know, I don't find anything admirable about that. Look, this guy is a master manipulator, and he was very effective doing that uh, on television. He's been effective doing that all his life. I grew up in New York. I remember well why people don't do business with Donald Trump once they get to know him. So I don't find anything admirable about uh, somebody who appeals to the worst in us, and that's what he did. There's a long history of people who have done that throughout human history. Uh, It usually doesn't end well. In fact, it never ends well. So was Trump democratically elected? Pretty much in the sense that, you know, the Electoral College and the gerrymandering and all that stuff obviously had an effect on it. And the Russians certainly had an effect on it. I think that's widely understood now. Whether he colluded with them or not remains to be seen once Mueller gets his report out, or if, if he's not fired first. 
But, you know, I don't find uh, anything admirable about Donald Trump. I recently watched a video of you where you said that we'd just been through the French Revolution in this country. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that. Sure. I actually talk a lot about that with the kids I teach at various places. You know, people get very disheartened by Trump and all his sort of meanness and so forth, and it's not to mention his incompetence. But the truth is that as a species, we're doing a hell of a lot better than we were uh, 3,000 years ago or even 100 years ago. There are less people in poverty. There's less hunger. There's less violence. There's less killing. And there's a Harvard professor named Steven Pinker who's actually written a great book about this called The Better Nature of Our Angels. And basically, we did have the French Revolution. We had a rising up of people who felt disenfranchised and disrespected. And instead of what happened in the French Revolution, which was people like me ended up in the guillotine, generally that hasn't happened because we have, uh, we live in a democratic society, despite the desires of the Republicans not to. So I, I remain optimistic. Now, this is a big testing point, as, as we've had testing points. But we have built institutions, particularly after uh, World War I and World War II, that are designed to constrict the more evil parts of humanity um, and by that, I mean the parts that dwell in each of us, not a particular segment of humanity, because I think everybody has evil in them. And so we design our institutions to try to circumscribe that while we build on the optimism and the idealism that human beings have. I think in the long run, that serves us well. The American Constitution is a document of huge change um, because it is the first place in government where the uh, government is designed to work for us rather than the other way around, and because it, of the declaration of all people are created equal. Now, all these efforts are going to fall short because we're human beings and we always fall short. If you set a higher bar, uh, you generally get closer to where you need to be. You never get there because we're you know, we have our failings as individuals and of, as a species. We're getting closer to where we need to be because we set, keep setting the bar higher. How should Democrats handle the removal of Sessions and the pressure on Mueller? We just need to do our job. And I agree with Pelosi on this one. I do not think we should rush into impeachment. I know people can't stand Trump. That's not a good reason to impeach somebody. We have to decide if he's a criminal or not. And we certainly know that he is in his business. Uh, but what we don't know is what he has done as president that would merit impeachment. I do not think you talk about impeachment without having a pretty good case. I don't think we should try to be like Donald Trump in order to beat Donald Trump. I think that's the trap. Uh, we need to continue to use our brains and use our sense of fairness as we deal with him. And so I think a methodical investigation. I have huge confidence in Adam Schiff. I think he knows what he's talking about. There'll be an investigation. I do not necessarily think that's going to lead to impeachment. We just have to see what we find. Do you think the institutions are going to hold? I don't know. This is a big test of, of the institutions. We've had this before. The most famous was the president that Trump idolizes, Andrew Jackson, when Chief Justice Marshall came down with a decision that Jackson didn't like, and he said, Jackson has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Uh, well, we survived that. We survived the Civil War when Lincoln uh, suspended the right of habeas corpus. Um, so we've, we've, we've survived worse than Trump. Nations are tested, and that's happened throughout history. Sometimes they meet the test, and they survive, and they go on and continue to grow, and sometimes they don't. So we'll see. I think he's demoralized a lot of people, and that's another reason that the elections, I think, were incredibly successful, because young, pe young people learned that they could fight back, and they could use the ballot box to do it. You know, 2020 will be a major test of that as well.
Do you see any sustained Republican pressure on Donald Trump? Um, no. Uh, I think the Republicans have been incredibly disappointing to me. There are people I like in the Republican Party, but there are almost nobody I respect anymore in the Republican Party. They would not stand up and criticize Trump. And I don't blame them in, in this sense. When Jeff Flake did try to stand up and Bob Corker, who I know and like, stood up, Trump cut their knees out from under them. Uh, within 24 hours, they announced they weren't running for re-election. Uh, because they couldn't. The Republican Party has become Trump's party, and I don't respect Trump, and I don't uh, think he's uh, any kind of a moral, uh, has any kind of moral constituency, and I think that's important for raising children as some sort of moral example. So uh, I think the Republican Party has been decimated by Trump and is going to have to go uh, undergo incredibly painful changes. It may go out of existence uh, and be called something else, as the Whig Party did uh, when Lincoln came along in 1856 with John C. Fremont and then won himself in 1860. What do you hear from these people when you talk to them socially, the Republicans, about Trump? I don't talk to them socially anymore. I'm 70 years old in a week. I don't waste my time talking to people who don't stand up for anything. Let's talk about 2020 for a little bit. Who do you see running for the Democrats and who would you like to see running for the Democrats? I'd like to see somebody, the next president of the United States, be under 50 or 55 if necessary. That's the only criteria I have right now. There are a tremendous number of great candidates. The gossip in the media is, oh, there's no bench. Well, that's just complete hogwash. There are fantastic numbers. I'll name a few right off the top of my head, but I have no intention of, of endorsing anybody or anything like that anytime soon. Chris Murphy from Connecticut, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand is incredibly capable and raises money like crazy. And then there's some more uh, unusual outliers that nobody's talking about that have capacity. Uh, Eric Salwell, from a congressman from California. Seth Moulton, congressman from Massachusetts. I mean, there's, and there's, there's a list that goes on forever. Uh, Cory Booker. I mean, you could go on and on and on and on and name people who are going to be interested in this, leaving aside the, you know, the septuagenarian group of Elizabeth and, and Bernie and, and Joe Biden. Look, this election has turned a page, and that leadership now has been handed over to the grassroots who are, you know, the so-called millennials, who I actually call the first global generation. I think that trend needs to continue, and we need, the reason Obama won, and I might add this generation that just took over, is taking now, is taking over the Democratic Party, put Obama into office, the only election in my lifetime where more people under 35 voted than over 65 uh, was in 2008. They put him in. Why? Because they thought that he was one of them. That is to say, in the same way Jack Kennedy was one of us, even though he was my father's generation, young, fresh, multicultural, and this generation considers themselves to be multicultural and is proud of it. And that's why they all went out and elected Obama. Now, obviously, Obama got a huge Hispanic turnout, a very large African-American turnout. But the core group that made a big, big difference because they had such a low voting turnout before Obama uh, were young people. And they are now about to take over our party. And I'd like to see somebody run for president who can connect with those people. That's why you have to th think about Beto. I've never met the guy. I have no idea what he's like, but it was a hell of a campaign. He, just watching the t television, I thought to myself, you know who this guy reminds me of? Barack Obama. All right. Howard Dean, thanks so much for coming on Bots and Ballots. Thank you. So if you do the math there, with Dean about to turn 70 and him demanding a candidate under 55 for the Democrats in 2020, I think it's a pretty safe assumption that he won't run. That's it for Bots and Bouts this week. Thanks to Jackson Bierfeld for field recording, to Leah Hitchens, my producer. 
please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm Grant Burningham.